Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, losing control. They were trying to get their hands on what at that point was $10 million. On day 15 of the Rouleau Inquiry, we continue to hear from convoy organizers. One lawyer painting a picture of a protest impossible to control, riddled with groups jockeying for power. I'm kind of a hothead. Also, a plan for a citizen-led review of Canada's COVID response. What would you recommend as to how this could be done differently? We'll speak to former reform leader Preston Manning about his hopes for a national inquiry. And... We don't correct this imbalance. We're going to be talking about whether we can afford to pay for schools or hospitals. Can this country meet the immigration minister's ambitious new target? A half million new immigrants each year by 2025. We will speak to Sean Fraser. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Pat King is arguably one of the most controversial figures from the convoy protest. Facing multiple criminal charges for what he did during the occupation, he was one of three witnesses who appeared before the Rouleau inquiry today. And like the two witnesses before him, pushed back on what's been said about him. Did you talk about violence? Not at all. Did you make any inappropriate comments? Not at all. Wow, well, maybe, I'm kind of a hothead. I kind of talk too much sometimes, and that's, I get that honestly by my mom. She's got the gift of the gab. <laughs> With more on this day 15 of the Rouleau Inquiry, we're now reaching out to Alex Balingal. He is a reporter with the Toronto Star who is covering the commission. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. So three witnesses taking the stand today at the inquiry, uh, beginning with Keith Wilson. Let's begin there because he made a very, uh, I guess, eye-catching allegation when it comes to law enforcement and the protest. Yeah, so this is a lawyer for some of the core organizers, um, the core group of organizers that came from out west, um, with some exceptions to, to start this thing, the, the Freedom Convoy. And what Wilson was saying today was that um, there were a number of leaks that came from various police agencies, like the OPP, the Ottawa Police, RCMP, and even CSIS, the, you know, the National Intelligence Service. Um, leaks about potential police raids, about other information that, about police actions during the occupation of Ottawa that they received um, throughout the three weeks that they were here. And uh, we haven't heard responses from the agencies, but, th but this kind of uh, adds to some evidence that we'd seen previously that, that um, both at the inquiry and, and previously, um, that there were some sympathies amongst some police officers to the cause of, of you know, lifting all COVID-19 mandates and health restrictions. And then the other witness we heard from today was Tom Marazzo. Talk to us about uh, him because he also raised some interesting points. Yeah, so Marazzo, he's a former uh, uh, Canadian soldier, uh, army officer, who uh, joined the convoy and became one of, one of their, uh, kind of like a prominent leader within this core group associated with Wilson. And um, like Wilson, Marazzo throughout his testimony, um, you know, downplayed a lot of the criticism the convoy has received, 
um, and kind of distanced himself from maybe more extreme or controversial elements within the wider protest group. Um, you might remember the Memorandum of Understanding that's sort of become notorious from this group called Canada Unity that uh, essentially called for the Trudeau government to be uns basically uh, replaced, um, undemocratically replaced uh, in order to lift mandates. Um, that was quite controversial at the time. That's drawn a lot of uh, attention and scrutiny. It was ultimately under pressure, according to Marazzo, from some organizers, um, rejected or, or removed as a demand by this group during the occupation. But both Marazzo and Wilson in their testimony today described this thing as, as legal nonsense and tried to distance themselves and the core group of organizers that they're with from mm -hmm. that demand. You talk about distancing themselves. One, the people they were distancing themselves from, both of them, was Pat King, who was the third witness today, uh, arguably among the more controversial protest leaders. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. Um, it seems like there's been an effort from this, again, this core group of organizers to create distance between themselves and Pat King. Um, just before I, I came on, that they were going through um, sort of almost like a series of, maybe the wrong phrase to use for it, but like the greatest hits of, of King's controversial statements online. He's this sort of social media influencer um, for kind of anti-COVID-19 measures world online. Uh, he's made a series of, you know, racist statements, um, controversial statements like Trudeau might catch a bullet. And he's been trying to explain those away and, and say, you know, in the, in the Trudeau catching a bullet case that, that he regrets making that comment. Um, he defended himself, uh, uh, tried to ex basically explain all those statements. Um, and, and also uh, he denied a few of the things that some of the uh, other uh, protest leaders had said um, about him during their testimony. So uh, a little bit combative, a little bit colorful at times, um, um, but, but he's certainly one of the, uh, the more, um, maybe more of a lightning rod character in this whole thing. Absolutely. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time today. No worries, Michael. Thanks for having me. With more, we're now reaching out to security expert Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So you heard me uh, talking to Alex about Keith Wilson's testimony today and really his allegation that law enforcement was feeding protest organizers this steady stream of information and intelligence. And for people at home, I, I do want to play a little bit of the questions that were posed to Keith Wilson at the commission. Take a listen to this scrum. Which services which... uh, that we're leaking? All of them. RCMP as well? Yes. Military? Active RCMP officers leaked to uh, the convoy? Yes. OPP, uh, Ottawa Police? Yes. Uh, uh, SCRS? Uh, no, uh, CSIS? Yes. Yes, CSIS. Yeah. So leaks that Wilson attributes to all police groups and CSIS. Uh, now, we know that there were some sympathizers, Stephanie, but are you taken aback at all by how widespread that sympathy was, or at least how widespread Wilson says that sympathy was? Yeah, I mean, there has been rumors about uh, what we would call an insider threat. And an insider threat is someone who uh, is a part of an organization and either, you know, causes damage or leaks information with the view of, you know, achieving some kind of objective, whether political or ideological or, you know, monetary in order to, you know, it, it ends up hurting their own organization, right? So what we're talking about here is insider threats. And 
really since February, we have heard these rumors from uh, various uh, accounts that there were definitely leaks in uh, the Ottawa Police Services and perhaps other organizations as well. Uh, for example, there was an RCMP chat that was leaked to uh, far right media that made you know social media around. So that's not new. What is new is like some of the allegations about uh, CSIS, for example, and you know basically saying all the police, OPP, things like this. And I mean, uh, Mr. Wilson is not particularly convincing or forthcoming in terms of, of the sources of information and where they were coming from and, and how good they were. He's just like, oh, yeah, we were getting it from everyone. Yep, 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 yep. So, I mean, I think it would be good for, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies to come clean in terms of, you know, how have they investigated? Uh, what have they looked at? Is there an insider threat problem? But I also think we need to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt, right? Um, an organization like CSIS may have been providing uh, information on, on national security threats, but wouldn't necessarily have any kind of operational knowledge uh, that, you know, because this was ultimately a policing operation. And the other thing that I think is important here is, you know, the convoy has an incentive to look like it's this big, all known knowing organization, right? So yes, they may have had some, some uh, some sorry some sympathizers within their organization they may have had some insider threats planted there but at the end of the day uh we're still not sure what the scale of that is and also we should be aware that you know they may be trying to to inflate their knowledge just a little bit so a bit of inflation as you say but there also seems to be some deflation if you will because we also heard from Tom Marazzo today another protest organizer and one of the more interesting points that he made was about Diagalon. Now, they've been described by the public safety minister as an extreme right-wing group, but to listen to Marazzo, he says it's nothing but a joke. So does that throw any cold water on the kind of uh, information and analysis that the government was getting? No, I think it uh, actually just reflects more on his character, right? Uh, that, you know, it's been well established. Diagonal is a group, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a podcast network now, um, but effectively they uh, adhere to some really uh, gross views, uh, definitely anti-government extremist views, but also, you know, Jeremy McKenzie in particular has expressed uh, anti-Semitic, uh, you know, Islamophobic, racist views uh, on, his, on his podcast. And uh, frankly, he said, terrible things uh, about Pierre Polyev's wife, um, very, very kind of violent things this past summer. So um, this is someone who is not, you know, who will always claim that to be joking, you know, they always point to the fact and, and you know, we saw this today in the testimony that, you know, oh, you know, Dagalon's leader is a is a goat and the goat is taking drugs or something like this. And you know, no one really cares about the GOAT. People care about what you're saying and what you're encouraging your followers to actually do. And, you know, is it a joke that someone in Coots, Alberta, who's been accused of plotting to murder 12 RCMP officers was wearing a Diagolon slogan? Uh, you know, I don't think so. So for him to say that this is some kind of, of, of joke is, is just patently uh, a way of, of trying to back away from some really terrible, odious comments uh, that, that have been made, and not only by Jeremy McKenzie, but other Diagolon leaders as well. Okay, and of course, the last witness for today is Pat King, a man who faces several charges related to the protests, including a mischief, obstructing a peace officer, counseling others to commit mischief, intimidation, and obstruct police. So what are you watching out for in this testimony, given the fact that he does face these criminal charges and at the same time is now appearing before the commission? 
Right. So, I mean, let, let's be honest with who Pat King is. He's someone who has said some really terrible things. Uh, again, also in the past, talking about only being able to solve political problems with bullets, uh, has spoken about white genocide and made other comments uh, along these lines uh, throughout and was actively encouraging, you know, protesters to resist uh, any any kind of attempt to shut down the convoy. Right. So, I mean, what's going to be interesting about Pat King is he's had a huge social media presence for some time, and it's quite clear that the organizers of this convoy knew that he was, uh, you know, they knew his character, they knew what he was like, but still wanted to include him because they knew that he would bring that large social media audience along with him, right? So they were playing a dangerous game. I guess what I'm looking for uh, as he's testifying right now is, is he going to be this kind of uh, charismatic person that we often see in social media where he kind of portrays himself as a jokester? Or is he going to come out swinging? Right. Where he's encouraged people to, you know, resist uh, police action to, you know, um, basically harass schools and airports during the convoy. Uh, I would suggest, you know, in the in the kind of first, I would say, you know, half an hour that he's been testifying, he's he has been trying to be a little bit of both, um, a little bit of charisma, but also uh, quite clearly someone who is is very, very angry. Stephanie, really appreciate your insight into all this. Thank you for the time again. Hey, thanks for having me on. The reaction is generally positive. Stakeholders welcoming the news announced yesterday by the Federal Minister of Immigration that Canada will be opening its doors to more new arrivals than ever before. And to talk about this, we're now joined by the Minister of Immigration, Sean Fraser. Hello, Minister. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Now, as I said, generally positive reaction, but there are some lingering questions, which I do want to talk about. But first, I want to talk about the need. Why the need to do this right now? You, you, you've been talking about uh, a big number here, half a million people, nearly the size of a Quebec City or a Hamilton coming to this country every year by 2025. Why the need to do this? Uh, look, the issue is more straightforward than I think some people make it. Uh, Canada needs more people. Uh, we need more people for economic reasons, and we need more people for demographic reasons. Uh, we've had one of the strongest economic recoveries of any advanced economy in the world. And despite the fact that we've recently hit the lowest uh, unemployment level uh, in Canada's recorded history, uh, this summer there was almost a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. Uh, in addition to the need to bring workers to help businesses succeed, uh, we're dealing with a troubling demographic trend. 50 years ago, there were seven workers for every retiree. 10 to 15 years from now, we're on pace to have only two. If we want our conversations about the economy to be about growth and not losing schools and hospitals because we can't afford them, then we need to continue to grow our workforce so we can sustain the public services that we too often take for granted in Canada. The plan to welcome more uh, newcomers to help fill these economic needs is a key part of the strategy to grow Canada's economy forward, not just in the short term, but over the course of the next generation. But, but again, you're talking about 500,000 new people coming to this country each and every year by 2025. And I do wonder whether or not the system can handle that number. As widely reported, you know this, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of applications right now sitting on desks going unprocessed. So with that kind of backlog, can the system really handle more work, more people coming to this country? So there's a really important distinction that we need to make. The immigration's level, levels plan that we tabled yesterday deals with permanent residency. Last year, we set a target to welcome 401,000 new permanent residents to Canada, and we exceeded that target by resettling 405,000. 
This year, we set a target for 431,000, and we are more than on pace to achieve those outcomes. There's no questions that the combined impact of our humanitarian responses to Afghanistan and Ukraine, as well as the challenges that are left over from the immense demands that the pandemic put on Canada's immigration system, have had an impact, but that impact has primarily been felt on our temporary lines of business for study permits and work permits. We're hiring more than 1,000 people to process those cases, relaxing certain administrative barriers, and embracing technology to get those pieces back on track. But those are separate and apart from our permanent residency programs, which we have demonstrated an ability to achieve despite very high levels this year and last year. So I'm confident that we are able to resettle larger numbers of people with our immigration processing. And in fact, increasing immigration levels speeds up processing times because there are some streams of immigration that get more applications every year than spaces have been allocated for. If you have that kind of a circumstance, the only way to reduce those backlogs is to grow your immigration spaces. The answer isn't to shrink them or to close the door. That would actually delay the opportunity for more people to get here. Okay, so so more opportunities to get to this country. What about settlement costs, though, and settlement in general? Will there be more money for that? Uh, one example is the housing crunch in this country. How do you settle new immigrants in the current marketplace, given that people already here are, are finding a hard time to find affordable housing? Uh, so first, thank you very much for asking this question. So more broadly on the issue of settlement, with increased numbers comes increased funding, and that's baked into the proposal. But on housing in particular, this is one of the areas of the Immigration Levels Plan that we've done the deepest thinking to make sure we do it in the right way. We've made changes to the express entry system so we can better target workers by the sector they're able to work in and by the region of Canada where they are destined to. We intend to do targeted draws to ensure that we can bring more skilled workers here who have the talents necessary to build more houses, not just for newcomers, but for Canadians who've been here for generations. In addition, we're leveraging regional pathways by increasing the Atlantic Immigration Program, the Rural and Northern Immigration Pilot, and the Provincial Nominee Program spaces so we can push people to parts of the country that have that absorptive capacity. It's also really important to understand that not every new permanent resident is coming from another country. Last year, 157,000 new permanent residents were already here as international students before. There's a lot of people here on temporary status that already have a home, that are working in an essential job, and we've made it easier now for them to stay. The combined impact of these different policy choices is that we'll be able to continue to welcome newcomers in large numbers without exacerbating a very difficult challenge around housing. And in fact, if we do it right, we may be able to build more housing stock to alleviate some of the pressures we've been experiencing in recent years. Mm -hmm. uh, listen, quickly losing time here, Minister, but I do I, I do want to ask this uh, because tomorrow is the fall economic statement from your colleague, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland. Can we expect some money to help with your announcement? If you, if you say uh, that this is an economic imperative, will there be more money to help facilitate your announcement? Well, let me start by saying in last year's economic and fiscal update, we received $85 million to hire more people and change the way we process study permits and work permits and temporary residence visas, among other things. We follow that up by a $385 million to improve client service in last year's federal budget. 
we're going to continue to make the investments that are necessary to continue to boost our processing capacity so we can shrink the time people have to wait to get to Canada and more people can come. I Any won't spoil secrets though? about what you might find in the fall economic statement. I'm afraid that's a matter of parliamentary <laughs> privilege. So you'll have to uh, sit with bated breath and wait for the document to be tabled, I'm afraid. Okay, well, you can't blame a journalist for trying. Uh, Minister. <laughs> we all got a job to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Minister Sean Fraser, thank you so much for the time today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Well, as the Public Order Emergency Commission continues to look at the invocation of the Emergencies Act, one of this country's most established statesmen wants to go a few steps further back. Preston Manning, the former leader of the now-defunct Reform Party, says there is a need for an inquiry into Canada's COVID-19 response. Take a listen. Was it the wisest thing to hand the management of this over to the healthcare bureaucracies? When one of the conclusions from the SARS pandemic was that our bureaucracies are not the right people to handle emergency, is that so? So what's the alternative? Uh, what you might get is some of these alternative narratives from the science and uh, and medical community who who argue that. The, the idea that there's a single scientific narrative with respect to anything is not scientific. Preston Manning joins us right now. Mr. Manning, very nice to see you again. Thank you for joining the program. Okay, thank you for having me. So here you are, not only saying that you believe there needs to uh, be a post-mortem of sorts on the COVID response, but you've also laid out a plan to meet that need. So I'm going to break that up, if you will, uh, beginning with why you think there needs to be an inquiry on the COVID response. Well, maybe two reasons, Michael. One is because a lot of other people think there should be one. And uh, I'm a small D Democrat. And when a lot of people say we would like to have an investigation into this, I, I think that should be responded uh, to. And secondly, I have seen some of this uh, public opinion surveying, w w one of the, which is on this website that I referred to today, that indicates 70 4% of Canadians felt they were harmed in one way or another uh, by the health protection measures adopted to cope with uh, COVID-19. This isn't the harms from the virus. These are uh, anticipated or harms uh, uh, connected to the, the, uh, the protection measures that were adopted. So I think those are two good reasons for uh, having this uh, national, independent, citizen-led inquiry into what went right, what went wrong, but more importantly, what can we learn from this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just very quickly for people who didn't hear the news conference earlier today, uh, the website exactly, what is the, the, the address for the website? Nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. And people are, that visit that site will be asked, do, are you in favor of having this type of an inquiry? And secondly, if you are, uh, who would you trust to be commissioners to conduct this inquiry? And we're trying to get a feel for who people would have confidence in uh, when this inquiry is held. So in your mind, who would make that up? You talked about a, a, an inquiry that would be national in scope, one that would be citizen-led. But if you were to lay out a, a plan here, who would it be? Former judges, uh, health experts? Who exactly would be uh, well, a commissioner yeah, that, here? 
great question. And, and in a way, I don't want to prejudge this, but I have made inquiries along that line myself. And I've got two different types of answers that maybe can be put together. So, some people say that the, what would be most important is the objectivity of these commissioners and that they be distant in a way from particular positions on the issue so that they can be objective. And, and that would suggest like retired judges or, or regulatory officials or someone like that. But other people have said, well, maybe that, but there have to be people on that commission that have expertise that can judge the medical side, the scientific side, the financial side or whatever. And so we'll see what comes in on this website, but you may get suggestions for both. And maybe one way of reconciling them would be to have a chief commissioner that's basically a objective, a more distant party, but other commissioners who do have expertise expertise in these particular areas. But mm -hmm. we really have to see what people themselves, I'd go with if there's somebody that people have great confidence in, I'd, I'd go with whoever they have the most confidence in. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, uh, this is, as you say, citizen-led. So that would not actually, or this would not actually be a, a commission of inquiry that would be covered by any Canadian statute or Canadian law. So how would it actually work? Who, who would come forward do you think do you think you'll actually get the kind of information that you're looking for if what you're trying to do is do a postmortem on official response? Well, I think I think the people that are most likely to come forward are the people that have suffered harms from these uh, these uh, protective measures and feel strongly enough about it that they'd be willing to tell their stories. There was an organization that held a kind of a test hearing uh, process in Toronto in June. And they just advertised for people to come and tell their stories. They ended up with 60 people testifying. They were each given 10 minutes each. And uh, they seem to have no difficulty getting people willing to tell their stories. But, but what about uh, public health officials or, or government officials? Because well, they, be, they would not be compelled by law to appear before a citizen-led no, no, inquiry. If this was held, like what you're getting at, if this was held under the Public Inquiries Act, for example, then mm -hmm. the commission would have the power, the power to subpoena uh, people to uh, force them to come and testify whether they wanted to or not. Th this commission will not have that power. What it can do is it can invite those people to to testify. And who knows, maybe they want to make the case for what they did or defend what they did, and they would be invited. If they declined to participate, of course, that would open them up to the suspicion, why are you declining? What have you got to hide? But this commission would not have the legal power to compel anyone to testify. So it would be more of a moral suasion. Uh, you, you know, Mr. Maddox, I listen to you speak right now. I, I, I wonder about the timing of this. And I think, you know, to, to Canadians' credit, most Canadians are still very willing to listen to different points of views and to do that patiently. But we're also at this point where, where many other Canadians are very polarized. Is this an appropriate time to be doing this kind of conversation? Is it even workable at this moment in time, given that uh, a citizen-led inquiry, not protected by any kind of law, uh, might be susceptible to partisanship or, or conspiracy theories or, or just anger being put at the table rather than actually having a meaningful discussion? Well, if, if this is done right, it could actually address some of those concerns that you raise. Uh, if people have highly polarized positions, and of course they want to articulate it, so they would uh, apply to testify at this inquiry. But they would ask two, be asked two questions 
that they're not normally asked. The first one is that if they testify, they would have to testify under oath. There would be a commissioner of oaths there uh, asking them to swear that what they are saying is true. And it's not just true. Uh, is it the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And secondly, their testimony would be subject to cross-examination. Legal counsel and technical counsel will be provided to this commission. So if somebody's away off in left field, yes, they can come. They got to swear that what they're saying is uh, is the truth. But the, the, their testimony be subject to cross-examination. And I think this is actually one of the ways of dealing with this misinformation uh, aspect on, on both sides of this issue. If cross-examination can sort out misinformation from real information. So if this is done right, it, it may address at least in part the, uh, the concerns that you raised. Mm -hmm. uh, quickly running out of time, but how, when would you like to see this inquiry beginning its work? Do you have a timeline in mind right yes, now? Yes, well, the, the, this website's been set up, this nationalcitizensinquiry.ca, and already there's been, a, I think, 11,000 plus people said that they want this inquiry. Uh, but th this website will be open for November and December, trying to get support, uh, these suggestions for commissioners, and also trying to raise money because this thing has to be financed through uh, contributions. But then if it all comes together, the idea is these hearings would be held uh, starting in January. And these would be in-person hearings and hearings for virtual, uh, there could be virtual participation. And they'd be at seven different locations across the country, uh, likely in January and February, winding up with a summary hearing in Ottawa in March. And then the commission would be expected to produce a report. So that's the general uh, timeline. And we'll, we'll see how well we can do it. <laughs> to hold to it. Well, Mr. Manny, I really, again, appreciate that your time today and, and dropping by and sharing your thoughts. So thank you for this. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for having me. And that is our program for this evening. We'll see you again tomorrow as we bring you the finance minister's fall economic statement. Will there be new money for new programs or is the cupboard truly bare? We'll have special live coverage for you right here. But for now, I'm Michael Serapio. And for everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. Have a good night.